0: Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Before we get to our conversation, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Dr. Sheffield who helped make today's episode possible. Yes, we know brushing our teeth is important, even though my kids don't quite believe me yet. It matters what kind of toothbrush you have, and it really matters what kind of toothpaste you're using. Dr. Sheffield invented and started making toothpaste in the 1870s. He was the first one to put it in a tube. Today, Dr. Sheffield's Certified Natural Toothpaste is SLS-free and made without harmful bleaching agents, fluoride, or artificial preservatives. It's also certified by the Natural Products Association. But that doesn't mean you have to sacrifice taste or texture. Their toothpaste comes in eight different flavors, including ones for kids, like strawberry banana, mixed berry, and chocolate. I'm learning with my boys that toothpaste flavor is a major selling point. To learn more about Dr. Sheffield's Certified Natural Toothpaste, head to drsheffieldsnaturals.com. It's also available at any major retailer like CVS and Walgreens.
1: Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go.
0: For me our soul is like it's unbound. It's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves.
1: When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive
0: things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, Founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers, and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is a number one New York Times bestselling author. He's also won a National Book Award. He's a professor of history and international studies, and he's the director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. He's also an ideas columnist at The Atlantic and a correspondent with CBS News. Dr. Kendi has authored books including The Black Campus Movement, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You!, Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, and How to Be an Anti Racist, which I just read and loved. His first children's book, Anti Racist Baby, is available now. Today, Dr. Kendi and I are talking about how racist policy has defined our reality and what we can do to start to break it down and rebuild it for a more equitable future. We talk about how it's a myth to believe that everyone needs to be on the same page before change can come, and how people learn to embrace change after the fact. We talk about the source of people's fear and how that can be strung like a guitar to perpetuate racist policies that benefit very few. We talk about the construct of race and how it's a mirage, yet how it defines who has power and who doesn't. We talk about the difference between segregationist and assimilationist thought and why the latter, which has been our M.O. for decades, is actually deeply racist because it suggests that everyone should assimilate into whiteness. We talk about the importance of preserving culture while we establish equity and how we can each take action within our own lives to achieve this.
1: People are just so scared, you know, about this young black male who may kill them and not scared about those white men who are driving drunk in their own
0: neighborhoods. Let's get right to my conversation with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Thank you for your time. I know I can only imagine what this has been like for you. And congrats on sort of writing the top of the New York Times bestseller list for so many weeks now. How are you doing, first of all?
1: I feel like for a while there was treading water, but I feel like now I've, uh, gotten my, gotten to sort of come up to shore a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm feeling much better now.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. And then a move. I'm sure you're exhausted. Congrats. That's so exciting and exciting for Boston.
1: Yeah. I'm really excited about, you know, we've moved to Boston and I'm moving to Boston university to build this this new BU center for anti-racist research. And, you know, people seem really excited about this new center and really, you know, reaching out to support and and collaborate. And so, yeah, we're excited about the new new initiative.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for your books. I devoured how to be an anti-racist and I'm, I have not finished stamped. I'm in the middle of it. I hate not having everything finished, but (laughs)
1: Well, that book is a little long.
0: <laughs> it's a tome. It's <laughs> but I feel like how to be an anti racist. I mean, what I'm experiencing on sort of my social right now is that and I'm curious about your thoughts on this. It feels like there are two two things happening. There are the those of us who are, you know, working on anti-racism on an individual level, which I think is quite complex and and personal and for many, it's traumatic and revisiting trauma, and it feels like we're sort of getting stuck in that, and that's what I've sort of observed in my own social is sort of this, I don't know what exactly what's happening, but it feels very frenetic and frantic, and obviously that works very important, but what I love about your book is that it's about the much greater context and the anti-racism work that we need to do on policy that then informs the culture. I mean, that's sort of where we need to be putting our attention, it seems like, in the moment. And not that the personal work isn't also essential, but that right now it feels like while there's so much momentum, we need to be sort of laser focused on November throughout all of our elections and really understanding how the mechanisms for change.
1: I think it's very, very important for people to, to recognize that it's one thing to just seek to learn or even transform yourself for the sake of learning or transforming yourself. It's, it's yet another thing to recognize that we need transformed people in order to transform this society, that we are, that it's critically important that we do do the personal work, but only so we can clearly see the problems, only so that we can clearly see the origins of those problems, only so we could see the policy and powerful forces that have caused those problems, you know, so that, of course, we we know where the problem lies and we know where we need to challenge and, and we know what we need to change.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally. Not to jump to the, the back of the book, but I thought that this was so wise and poignant when you talk about, you write, moral and education suasion breathes the assumption that racist minds must be changed before racist policy, ignoring history that says otherwise. And you sort of go on to list everything from desegregation to interracial marriage to Obamacare, that these things you know, there's so much fear and resistance to change. And then when these things change, people overwhelmingly support them. And so I think that there's a lot of movement right now to get everyone on the bus, right? Like, let's get all the Karens on the bus. Let's make sure we're all along for the ride. But it doesn't really, that isn't required or necessary in order to start to dramatically affect the policies that are keeping our culture so inequitable.
1: No, and, and what's striking is, is, is that I don't think, you know, I think regular folks, everyday people, there are many things we're not taught. Um, and, and certainly we are not systematically taught to be anti-racist. We're not systematically taught what racism is and how it's operated historically. but we're also not systematically taught about is power. And, mm-hmm. and, and how change happens. And if you are in a position of power and you know that historically change has come through people replacing you or by people, movements, campaigns, you know typically forcing you to, to transform your policies and you, you you want to stay in your position and you certainly don't want anyone forcing or demanding anything then you're going to be more likely to support this narrative that the way change happens is by all of these sort of people coming on board and convincing and persuading you know, powerful people who did not even understand the effects of their policies. And, and then once that sort of happens, they will easily and quickly be willing to, to change their policy positions and mm-hmm. because so many people have been you know they are, are are have become rec- have recognized and persuaded them to change that's just not how it's happened historically
0: yeah. and
1: and and the way and so i think it's critically important for for people to realize that and and i think it's critically important for people to realize how it has come you know for instance the you know Abraham Lincoln did not issue the Emancipation Proclamation because he had this revelation about slavery, that it was that it was evil, that it was bad, that it needed to end immediately. It was a military initiative. In other words, the union recognized that in order to really defeat the Confederacy, they had to strike them at their heart, which was enslaved people, which was the the value that they gained through and, 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 and how by emancipating or at least issuing the Emancipation Proclamation and and, and ensuring the union lines continue to travel into the South, that more and more people would run away from plantations, literally running away and weakening the Confederacy and in some cases strengthening the union. So this was really about self-interest. Yeah. And Black people and a- anti-racist and abolition is creating the conditions that that led to that. And so I think it's critically important for people to just understand history.
0: Exactly. I mean, I think it was in Jennifer Eberhardt's book where that I read this quote, but it was staggering. It was, I think, 8% of high school seniors were able to correctly identify that the South succeeded because of slavery. Most of them thought it was like tax law or i mean just completely completely confused about history i mean we we are unfortunately and i put myself in this group com- totally ignorant and we accept things sort of as they are without questioning them i mean i think in this moment in time things are clearly changing people are becoming more conscious they're waking up they're trying to understand The system that, quite frankly, has always worked for people like me, right? So I've never, until probably four or five years ago, hadn't really ever even given it much thought. I mean, really, it wasn't until Trump. And it's interesting that you bring up Lincoln, too, because I think that, and we're seeing this now, that we like to be very binary about people. And it's just... I think as we, how we are as humans, right? People are good or bad or, you know, Lincoln is, a, is just a hero. We, we, we miss all the nuance. We miss all the complexity. We sort of cut out all of the humanity and our need to group people in a way that I think is sort of a profound disservice to our understanding of history and our, the way that we even judge ourselves or allow ourselves to change and evolve we're so fixated on this idea of like, am I a good person? You know, am I bad? Like you're saying I'm bad. I mean, you talk about how racism is, you know, it's a pejorative term in our culture. It's so triggering that you can't even have these conversations or you couldn't have these conversations without people putting their heads in the sand.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's based on how we've come to understand the term racist. And, and so just as people on the term understand the term not racist so people view not racist as an identity like that is who they are i am a not i'm not racist no matter what i just said no matter what i just did no matter what policymakers i support i am not racist that's that that's understanding the construct of not racist as an identity that is essential to who a person is and people believe the same thing about racist that you know Someone has a racist bone in their they have racist bones in their bodies, that this is in their heart. This is who they are. And, and what I've been trying to, to, to say, based on my reading and my research, um in my work, is that no, actually, racist is what a person is being, not who a person is. Meaning, if a person in a particular moment is stating that slavery is evil, as at times Abraham Lincoln stated, in that moment, he is being anti-racist. But if in the very next moment, someone like Lincoln is saying, okay, slavery is evil, so we should free all these Black people and then colonize them back to Africa, and because the races... They, they could never really gain equality in the United States. In that moment, Lincoln and others who were advocating colonization were being racist. And mm-hmm. if in the very next moment, uh, he says, well, you know, I think that now black men should have the right to vote, especially as a result of their efforts during the civil war and black men should have the right to vote like, like white men. Then in that moment, he's being anti-racist. So I think it's, I think it's critically important for people to recognize that, that these aren't fixed categories. These aren't identities. The, this is, these are descriptive terms that describe what a person is being in any given moment.
0: And that we can hold, we can hold these ideas against our own, Right, that oh, you know, you talk pushing. about, yeah, like the concept of patriarchal women, or talk. You talk about your own racism, and in, in in your conception of black people being the problem, right? Not the mm-hmm. policies that are, you know, destroying black communities. You talk a little bit more about like how that manifests.
1: Sure, I, I think bigotry is so powerful, and and whether we're talking about the bigotry of racist ideas or even, you know, sexist ideas or homophobic ideas or, you know, on down the line, these, these narratives of bigotry are so powerful and so widespread that even the people who these ideas are degrading in some cases, if not in most cases, believe them too. And, 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 and I think, that if you grow up in, in the United States where black people are constantly projected as dangerous and lazy and violent and not taking personal responsibility for their own lives and black people are constantly being told that, it, it, it becomes very difficult for no black people at any point to believe any of those ideas. And, mm-hmm. and especially about other Black groups. So, you know, cause even, you know, Black people are not a monolith, just like white people and Asian and Native people are not monoliths, so they're different groups. And, and, and so what, what you have many Black people doing, which is what happens in other races, is people rejecting the racist ideas about their own group. So as a Black man, I'm gonna reject those who are stating that there's something inferior about Black men, but I'm going to accept and believe the idea stating there's something inferior about black women or as a heterosexual Mm -hmm. black male, I'm going to reject ideas about black heterosexuality and, and, and accept and believe racist ideas about black queer people. And, you know, just as you have white elites who say things like impoverished white people are not facing incredibly difficult exploitative conditions and the problem is the policies that are leading to those conditions no they just call them trash white trash mm-hmm. and and so you know just as within Latin, Latinx America and Asian America and Native America you you have people internalizing ideas about their own sort of groups that that are simply not true mm-hmm.
0: yeah no i think it's it's the way that you sort of articulated and then weave in your own personal narrative is so beautiful and so illuminating because I think that people also get tripped up and and you sort of list all of the Black people in our culture who have power from Clarence Thomas to police sheets, et cetera. And that, because I think that white people get stuck on this idea of like, well, there's a Black cop who's participating in that. So how can that be... How can this be a systemic problem, again, in our desire to, you know, treat people as monoliths, right? But everyone's drinking the water. We're all programmed with these same racist policies. And we, you know, I certainly, we see this as a woman. I see this, there's a lot of internalized sexism, of course, but I think that it's such a beautiful articulation of what's so confounding to us, which is that desire to be, like, all Black people, all white people, and sort of losing the way that we've all been swimming in this.
1: Yeah, now, I don't think people have fully realized just how much people's rigid ideas about the non-existence of internalized bigotry has actually furthered bigotry towards their own group. Meaning, if you if you are a leader of a company and your company has been... Ridiculed rightly as being deeply sexist and deeply anti-woman, what many captains of, of, of industry or you know company leaders do is they say, "Okay, let me hire a, a, a woman CEO. Let me put more women in the C-suite, and let me choose specifically a woman who is going to carry on my sexist policies towards women, because mm-hmm. then nobody can claim that the company is sexist because." There's a woman who's carrying out these policies. And the same thing with Black people. It's, okay, you know what? You're calling my company or my institution racist so or anti-Black, so I'm going to bring in a Black person who believes Black people are the problem. I'm going to be- bring in a Black person who believes that Black people are lazy and shouldn't be hired. So I'm So then that Black person is going to then continue to execute the very same policies that the previous person was... Was, was was degraded for, but then nobody can call that person racist because they're Black, you know? And it's mm-hmm. this, I, you know, I, I, and so I don't think people recognize that that happens so regularly. <laughs> in other yeah. words, you know, there's this PR problem that institutions and companies have, and they bring in a person of the particular ostracized group to essentially present that person as a representative that the company is no longer practicing that form of bigotry when indeed, in many cases, that person is just going to be the new leader of that bigotry. And and, and so then we don't really move ahead because our resistance to that bigotry is then essentially overwhelmed by the presence of a person rather than the outcomes of policies and ideas.
0: hmm no, it's that's so true. And I think too, we have this as people, we have this reflexive desire to not be uncomfortable, right? So when stuff like this comes up, whether it's on a personal level in a company, people are like, "Well, what can I do to make myself feel better? What can I do to make like what do i how do I treat this symptom right of this of this deep unease, not like let me understand the root cause of this, and let's let's focus on that and ferret that out. And so you get. And I don't know. It seems, too, like what you're suggesting is that's okay. The the bottom's up sort of let's take accountability in our own lives. But it has to be root cause. It has to come from the system. It has to be a reengineering of racist policies and that we would all benefit. There's such a lie happening just that plays on people's fear of change that somehow by making the world centered around equity that we would be losing, like what somehow we'd end up worse off.
1: Yeah. And I, I think it's to, you know, to put this in context, if you are a person who has limited privilege um, and you, or you have limited resources and you are constantly being told by the people you've long voted for, by the people who look like you, by the people who present themselves as caring about you politically, that if change happens, you're going to lose. So you're already struggling. Mm -hmm. And then the folks that you've come to respect tell you, yeah, these these anti-racists get their way, you're actually gonna lose. It's, It's, I think, you know thinking about it in that context it can be very difficult for people to over to basically believe otherwise yeah. and especially because they are constantly being told that by the people who they trust and believe politically and, and i think that is that historically has been the ways in which white middle income and working class and certainly white poor people have been manipulated into supporting policies that were actually going to harm them more than policies that were more equitable. And, and, and I think that, you know, trying to figure out a way to, to get people to, to, to trust and believe that change will actually make their life better has always been an American problem. For, yeah. for particularly for white people.
0: We'll get back to Dr. Ibram X. Kendi in just a second. Our editorial and product development teams like to stay in the know when it comes to which clean products are best. And at home, I try to prioritize ways I can further detox and clean things up. Dr. Sheffield's certified natural toothpaste contains no synthetic detergents, foaming agents, harmful bleaching agents, or artificial preservatives. It's also certified by the Natural Products Association. And fun fact, their toothpaste formula is still made from Dr. Sheffield's original notebooks and recipes from the 1870s. On the same site, Dr. Sheffield invented toothpaste. They don't sacrifice taste or texture. It comes in eight different flavors, including natural peppermint, cinnamon, sensitive care, and extra whitening. To learn more about Dr. Sheffield's Certified Natural Toothpaste, head to DrSheffieldsNaturals.com. It's also available at any major retailer like CVS or Walgreens. Over the past several years, we've held eight intensive in-person wellness summits called InGoop Health. They have been some of my favorite days. If you've ever attended one, you know how fun they are and how goopy they get, and also that they are highly produced affairs the team pays attention to every single detail. And the gift bag at the end of the day is legendary. But the most meaningful part of the experience is the community that has formed around Ingoop Health, full of people who want to connect more deeply with themselves, the people in their lives, and the world around them. Right now, this community feels more important than ever. And for a long time, we've wanted to find a way to make it and the spirit of Ingoop Health more accessible to people wherever they're at. So we've decided to host a digital series of InGoop Health sessions. Each Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific time, me or GP will kick off a one hour wellness session with an expert we admire. We'll cover spirituality workshops, more intimate conversations, workout classes, and practical effective takeaway tools for navigating this time. The sessions will be live streamed on YouTube initially and they are free to join. If you can, we hope you'll consider making a donation to Doctors Without Borders. I'm very excited for our next session on Wednesday, June 24th. Gwyneth is hosting with Chelsea Handler. They catch up on life, new normals, and the paperback release of Handler's number one New York Times bestselling book, Life Will Be the Death of Me. I have the feeling their conversation is going to be incredibly thoughtful, wise, heartfelt, and hilarious. I hope you can join us this week and every Wednesday for this series. To learn more, head to goop.com slash ingoophealth. You can also watch our previously recorded sessions there. That's goop.com slash in goop health. Back to my chat with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. We are so susceptible to fear. And when you think about fear as being fear of losing what you have or fear of not getting what you need, I think that so many people are balanced on that precipice right now of that being feeling so real that it is, you know, is paralyzing. And as you write, there's no universal health care in this country and there is no basic universal income. There's no safety net for people. It's a terrible system. And I thought this was so beautifully put. Do you mind if I read you a passage? Sure. Okay. So you write, which I think just sort of summarizes exactly why we're so confused. The idea of the dangerous black neighborhood is the most dangerous racist idea, and it is powerfully misleading. For instance, people steer away from stigmatized black neighborhoods as crime ridden streets where you might have your wallet stolen. But they aspire to move into upscale white neighborhoods home to white collar criminals and banksters, as Tom Hartman calls them, who might steal your life savings. Americans lost trillions during the Great Recession, which was largely triggered by financial crimes of staggering enormity. Estimated losses from white-collar crimes are believed to be between $300 and $600 billion per year, according to the FBI. By comparison, near the height of violent crime in 1995, the FBI reported that combined costs of burglary and robbery to be $4 billion. And and then you also talk about how there's this idea of black neighborhoods as being places of homicide, and but we somehow don't connect the fact that all mass shooters are white. It's staggering. There's like we're just missing all of this context, and we're again run by f- this weird fear.
1: Yeah, and you know, I I, I think this really. It really hit me about this when I was studying data from I think it was 1986, and that was the, really the height of what people call the crack epidemic, and the massive amounts, you know, as it was reported at the time, of violent crime stemming from the crack epidemic, and of course, black people were demonized for not only being engaged in violent crime, but also as so-called crack babies and crack mothers and so on and so forth, were also demonized for overdosing on on crack. And that year, 1986, which was like, you know, crack was the story of the year and the way COVID and, and police violence and demonstrations have been the stories of the year this year. Like that year, more Americans died from drunk drivers than they Mm. did from homicides and and drug overdoses combined. Mm. And then the studies, when you start to think about, okay, what people are, who who are most likely to drink and drive? You know, a study from a few years later found that 75% of drunk drivers were white men. And and then when you think of, okay, where are these people primarily driving? (laughs) Obviously, you know, because our nation is so segregated, they're primarily driving in white neighborhoods. And then when you think about even the homicides during that year, you know, you had many people who were involved in, in drug activity or gang activity who were subjected to, obviously, you know, homicides and, and so then part of the concern that even white people have is this idea that, you know, that this innocent person, me, <laughs> is just going to go into this neighborhood and be killed. But indeed, how many of the victims of drunk drivers were completely innocent? And, and so this, you know, people just assume, but, but I mean, just back it up. And people, when they think of drunk driving, they don't even think of it as a violent crime. Right. Like it's not even considered a violent crime, right? And and people also don't know that. Last I checked, the fourth highest, the when you look at the top ten list or causes of death in the United States, last I checked, unintentional injuries are number four. And then when you look at within the category of unintentional injuries, what's what's the major sort of category of death it's motor vehicle crashes and and you look at the top 10 causes of death homicides aren't even there right but then you know people are just so scared you know about this young black male who may kill them and not scared about those white men who are driving drunk in their own neighborhoods
0: yeah i mean it's crazy Speaking of staggering statistics, too, it's like you offered this one, which just I knew. I mean, obviously, mass incarceration is is one of the grossest violations of racist policy and something and and policing. And obviously, that's what everyone's collectively trying to address right now. But this stat, too, beyond just sort of the extreme overrepresentation of black and Latinx people in jail, that nonviolent black drug offenders remain in prisons for about the same length of time 58.7 months as violent white criminals. Yeah. 61.7 months. Like how is that serving anyone?
1: And I, I think that's the question that people who've been studying and who've been outraged about the racism within the criminal justice system have been saying for decades and I think that can be compared to so again you have nonviolent Black folks who are ultimately staying in prison as long as violent white folks. And that's equivalent to how and I should say many black folk now and and you know are saying that if you are black and unarmed in dealing with the police, you're 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 more of a threat than a white person who's armed. And because not, you know, what, what happens is people aren't just seeing these shootings of of unarmed Black people who, you know, are are being kneed to death or shot in their back or who are just sleeping in their homes and and they're killed in in Louisville. But they're also watching YouTube and seeing videos of white men with guns who are shooting at the police or who are armed who are being arrested without a scratch on them. Or, you know, white men who are punching uh, and white people who are punching cops and cops are not pulling out their weapons to shoot and kill them and the contrast and people again you know for for many people the contrast is so great you know just like the contrast of non-violent black offenders having to to stay in prison as long as violent white offenders
0: mm-hmm It's I mean, I think that's been sort of one of another fascinating part of watching the protests too, is watching cops sort of shove, you know, like the 75 year old white man with bleeding, you know, head bleeding on the sidewalk. I think for white people to see that was like, oh, my God, now I something I think is also clicking in that context of like, how could you be so violent against someone who is not violent? And I. I think for whatever, and again, it goes to this systemic, this fear, this internalized racism, and you talk about it. I thought this was also so helpful when you talk about uh, segregationist, assimilationist ideas, and then anti-racist ideas. But that assimilationist idea that I think we, so many of us have been part of, which is... When we see something like that, we're like, oh, well, they're both something must have happened, right? Both people Mm -hmm. must have been I can't you you articulate it really well and stamped, but that somehow there's there's a reason, right, that this cop would be so violent against this unarmed black person. But can you in general, can you sort of explain segregationist assimilationist and then how that's that needs to assimilationist and particularly needs to be eclipsed by like anti-racist?
1: Sure. So, yeah, it, I think you know many of us know the whole nature versus nurture debate. Well, that also exists within racist ideas. In other words, historically segregationists have said, let's say, Black people are inferior by nature. Black people are genetically, biologically inferior. They're naturally predisposed to violence and criminality and laziness and stupidity. While assimilationists have historically said, no, Black people are not naturally predisposed to criminality and and, and violence and stupidity, that their their stupidity and violence and laziness stems from their environment. So they were nurtured to be that way. It's the result of their... And so they were made to be that way because they came of age in broken communities and broken homes and broken cultures with broken parents and families. And so therefore, assimilationists say, it's our job to fix them, to fix those cultures, to fix those communities, to fix those parents and, and to fix those homes. And segregationists are like, y'all are crazy. <laughs> they can't be fixed, right? And because in a way, segregationists say they're like animals. They're beasts. You can't, you know, you can't, and, 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 and you, you can't sort of train away a beast. They're always gonna be a beast. That's their nature. And assimilationists have been like, no, actually they're more like children. So, you know, we need to just develop and civilize them. And then everything will, will be okay. The racial disparities will go away. Yes, it's the result of their culture and behavior that they are less likely to have wealth. They're more likely to be in prison but that can change. And and so that's the job. While anti racists standing on the outside of this racist debate have been like, y'all are both crazy. (laughs) And, you know, Black people are neither inferior by nature nor nurture, that Black people are, as a group, are neither children nor animals. And then the cause of disparities has always been racist policy and and, and, and power. And they Mm -hmm. say to assimilationists, stop, Trying to civilize and develop us. Stop trying to act like we are the problem. You know, stop your paternalism and your condescending posture towards towards people of color. And they've said to segregationists, the data is indisputable that we're pretty much all the same biologically.
0: Yep. You write assimilationists can position any racial group as the superior standard that another racial group should be measuring themselves against. And I feel like we're having this conversation too collectively, which is. Sort of does America, should America be, you know, if you look at any any company, regardless of whether of what it's what it's doing or who the audience for that company's goods is, it all needs to sort of hit hit these numbers. Right. It all needs to be a perfect representation of America. And that might be true. And I think for certain companies, that's certainly true. But I don't know that that's true for all companies, right? And and as you say, that's not true of all spaces. All spaces need to be equitable. They all need access to the same resources. Schools need to be equitable in their funding, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the culture or all of our cultures need to be homogenized or that there can't be. Like, I think in our minds, we're like, oh, well, all schools, and you sort of, there's a, a long, longish but fascinating conversation about schools specifically but like what what do you what are your thoughts on that like what are we trying to build and how do we maintain culture throughout this all so that it's not again it seems like an assimilationist idea to be like everyone needs to leave their culture and integrate into our culture
1: yeah it, it certainly is and, and and you know that's assimilationist particularly white assimilationists have historically standardized their culture, their way of being, their way of looking even and and said to others, you know you need to look like us and act like us and and, and be like us and once you do you'll be human and civilized and and that also sort of that assimilationist mindset also affects spaces And so the United States, has always been, has never really been a homogenous sort of place. You've had Native people. You've had, of course, you know, white people from, from different countries in, 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 in Europe, just as Native people have, have had different and built different nations and societies. You've had enslaved people. You've had Asian immigrants and, and, and even people, you know, who are already here. You've had the same thing for Latinx people. And so all these different groups... Have come to this country or were already at this country or were forced to to come to this country in the case of my ancestors. And and so then the question has always been, and and in each of these, I should say, groups have formed their communities, their institutions. Mm -hmm. And, And currently, Latinx people make up about 17 or so percent of the national population. African-Americans or Black Americans, I should say, make up about 13 percent of the population. And I believe Asian-Americans make up about five percent, the last I checked, of the national population. And and Native Americans, last I checked, made up about one to two percent of the national population. And then non-Hispanic whites are closer to 65 percent. So then the question becomes, if we created a nation where every single community and every single institution was reflective of national that national racial breakdown, then that means in every single community and every single institution, white people would be in the majority. Yeah. And, and, and thereby there would be it would be the complete elimination of native institutions of, of Asian, of, of black and, and Latinx. It's these institutions that are really the cradle of their cultures, really the maintainers of of, of these different sort of cultures. And and so for me, that's not, I don't aspire to have an America in which no matter where I go, white people are always in the majority. So that sounds (laughs) beneficial for white people, but it doesn't necessarily (laughs) sound beneficial for everybody, you know, who's not white, who doesn't necessarily think that white people are superior in that they want to be around in s- communities that white people are predominating. And then in a democracy, if you're in the majority, then you're gonna rule. So I, I think that it's more so important for us to ensure that there are resource equity between these different spaces and certainly that everyone has access to to different spaces. So we shouldn't have segregated spaces. you know people from different races should be able to enter, you know, into different spaces and should be, you know, as opposed to certainly what we've <laughs> previously had in terms of, you know, separate, but certainly not equal. And, yeah. You know, and, and I just, you know, I was born and raised in African-American culture and I, I value it and I value the black spaces that I was raised in.
0: But as you say, you know, it's this this systemic inequality that has to be fixed. Like, this the, here are, and people are probably familiar with these stats, but I think it's worth repeating. Black poverty rate in 2017 stood at 20%, which is nearly triple the white poverty rate. And the black unemployment rate has been at least twice as high as the white unemployment rate for the last 50 years. And the wage gap between blacks and whites is is the largest in 40 years. And the median net worth of white families is about 10 times that of black families, which is insane and then that's not even talking about health disparities and access to well-funded schools which is just profoundly unfair. And then it's so easy, you know, for for white institutions to claim to get better outcomes because it's not it's so vastly inequitable. So how do we fix this? What do you clearly right now people are are focused on defunding the police and, and reallocating those funds. But what do you want to see? Like, how do you, how do you want people to organize and take action?
1: So I think you, you just described a number of racial disparities and inequities that exist and have been persisting for quite some time. And I think it's critically important for people to, to take an accounting of those racial disparities in their own neighborhoods in their home communities and, and then ask the question, why do these disparities exist? And there's only gonna be two answers. Either it's either black people are, are twice as likely to be unemployed as, as white people because there's something wrong with black workers. They're not qualified, they don't wanna work. They're not good workers. There's something wrong with black people, again, as a group when compared to white workers as a group or it's the result of racist policies, and and so I think if you in order you know, in terms of what to do, if you if you have and adopt a more anti-racist perspective, that there's nothing wrong or even right about any racial group. And I keep emphasizing groups because I'm not saying there are not any black workers who are lazy at times. I'm saying there are white workers who are lazy at times too, and mm-hmm. no one's ever proven that one racial group has this monopoly on negative or even positive characteristics. And what we do is we see a single individual in a particular group and make that person representative of the group when that person is only representative of themselves. And so I I think if we really recognize the racial groups as equals, then that means when we look at our policies, I'm sorry, our inequities in our own communities, in our institutions, and there's only one other explanation, and that is racist policies. And so we then can think through, okay, what people, what organizations, what powerful people are fighting these racist policies in my neighborhoods? Who's even studying them? Who's trying to figure out what they are? What's driving these inequities? And then the question becomes, how can each and every one of us support these people? Can we? can we amplify their campaign can we fund them? can we join an organization like you know what do we have to give what expertise do we have what resources do we have you know to give not everyone can literally be out you know could could donate you know a hundred hours a week but some of those very people who can't donate their time can donate their their money or they, they may not have time or money but they can donate platform. So I, I think everyone needs to take an accounting of the racist policies in their own communities, take an accounting of themselves in terms of how they can contribute to their elimination.
0: No, I agree. And I think that within sort of these, the, the categorization of racist policies, I think that it's helpful to we all, you know, it's a marathon, obviously. And I think that there's something in it for each of us that sort of has a perfect Venn diagram of our own interests or what we're interested in for our children, and then how we extend that in a way that's significant. I don't think that, you know, I think we also tend to get so overwhelmed, right? And then it goes, you do, you do. I loved sort of this paragraph where you talk about the ways that we blame when we fail instead of sort of understanding where we're banging our own heads against the wall. And like just i i think we it's like when we transform people and do not show them an avenue of support we blame their lack of commitment rather than our lack of guidance i think what we all collectively need to do is understand within our own sphere of interest where what within our own sort of power structure where can we extend ourselves and start chipping away at it it's it's local policy it's community policy it's certainly national policy but we can't, I feel like we just, we get into these like sort of fervor and it's like, well, no, let's just get to work. Let's just do exactly. this.
1: Let's get to work.
0: <laughs> let's get to work. Do you feel optimistic? So,
1: I mean, I'm not necessarily optimistic or pessimistic, but I do believe that we have to believe change is possible in order to to, to bring it about. And yeah. and how, you know, you can't really imagine You can't really bring into being a different world if you can't even imagine it, because, you know, that's the sort of first step. And so I I think I think I just believe change is possible because you have to philosophically believe it. And also as a student of history, there's just been so many times in history in which the impossible happened. And, Mm -hmm. And I think we can make the impossible happen again.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. For more, head to ibramxkendi.com. That's I-B-R-A-M-X-K-E-N-D-I. I highly recommend checking out his books, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Stamped from the Beginning, Stamped, and the Black Campus Movement. And his first children's book, Anti-Racist Baby, is available now. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.